the laundry is not talking to me, because that would be impossible. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. The laundry is not talking to me. It's not scolding me or giving me a guilt trip about the fact that I haven't washed, dried, folded, and put away everything. The laundry is not telling me I'm a terrible person or a failure as a dad or husband. It can't do that. It's not alive. It's clothes. Same with the dishes. There's no judgment being handed down by the dishes in the sink to me. They're not yelling out their ruling on my value as a human being. Can't yell, got no mouths. I would like to clean the dishes. I like to have a clean kitchen. But the dishes have no power over me because the dishes and the cleaning of them are morally neutral. A messy house or a clean house are not inherently bad or good. The state of order or chaos among your cleaning tasks are not any kind of reflection on you as a person or a partner or a roommate or a family member. That's one of the things Casey Davis wants you to know. Casey Davis is a therapist. She's the author of a new book, How to Keep House While Drowning. Casey hosts a podcast called Struggle Care, and she's a social media video maker. Her field of expertise is care tasks, the things you need to do around the home. And she's very interested in helping people who have a hard time completing those tasks, whether that's due to mental health issues, neurodivergence, or chronic illness, or things like grief, postpartum, or trauma, all those human factors. Casey's approach is sympathetic and kind to the human being faced with care tasks, maybe more sympathetic and kind than people may sometimes be to themselves. I think it can help you if you're faced with a pile of dishes or a messy laundry area and you think that it makes you a bad person. Because you're not a bad person. Come on, let's go talk to Casey. Casey Davis, welcome to Depression Mode. Hello, happy to be here. I, I've never asked this before of somebody I'm interviewing, but uh, Casey, how is your house looking right now? <laughs> so we actually moved like 10 days ago. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. So it is in some ways much more functional than I expected. My mother came down to help me and I find that if I have somebody else there with me, like pushing me to finish things, we get a lot done. And then she left when I only had a few extra things to do. And so I haven't done any of those extra things. Okay. And I mean, it generally looks like four people live there and two of them are under the age of five. Gotcha. Gotcha. How old are your kids? They're two and four. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> how long were you in the, the place you lived before this? Three years. Three years. Do you have boxes from when you moved into that place that have gone over uh, unopened to the new place and have still not been opened? No, but only because I discovered the hack for that, which is that we rent moving crates. Uh huh. We rent plastic moving crates from a moving company and they charge you by the week. Oh. So when you get them into the new house, it's like, 
falls to the wall, everything has to be taken out of right. the crates. Even if we don't put it anywhere, even if it's in a pile in the middle of the room it belongs into, we get everything out of the crate within the first three days. And then we go back through and worry about putting things away and not leaving them in piles. But having that like hard punitive deadline of somebody coming to pick up those crates Monday morning is the only thing that keeps me from holding onto boxes for years. Right. I've always found that that most people I know have the one sentimental box that has like pictures from high school and letters from people that you haven't spoken to in 30 years that is just impossible to to open and put anywhere but is also impossible to discard. Do you have the sentimental box? I do. Okay. I I had I pared it down to into small boxes so that I could pack them away and they just stay sort of hidden somewhere. Um, and I, I did end up using like maybe be, maybe like five or six cardboard boxes. And of those six, two of them are still not unpacked. Okay. Okay. So how long have you been in the house now? 10 days, you said? Yes. I think 10, days. About 10 days. Okay. And with the two young children and with life being what life is, has it, has it started to slide back from that point of where it was almost in place? Is it regressing and I guess sort of devolving to the mean? Well, I don't really think of it as regressing or backsliding only because for me, like I really spent so much time in my head thinking that like when it came to my mental health, I was either doing good or doing bad and so I began to see things in my life either as proof that I was doing good or proof that I was doing bad. And then I would feel shame about doing bad and have to berate myself into doing something different because I was only okay. I only didn't feel the anxiety of worthlessness if I was doing good. So I really try to look at my home and things as just morally neutral. Like they're, they're not about doing good or bad or, or any of those things. They're just about living. And I just try to keep things functional and it's a bigger house than we were in. And so getting used to having more space, which is like a blessing and a curse, like on the one hand, it's harder to keep larger spaces tidy. But the nice thing is, is with children, when you're in a small space, a small mess feels overwhelming. You know what I mean? Like a little bit of stuff out feels like, oh my God, the whole surface, you know, areas. Whereas now, you know, my kids can tear up an entire room, but I don't have to look at that room. It's interesting. You, you talked about this perception that you used to have of you're doing good or you're doing bad. And what I find interesting about that is if you're doing good, then the most you could hope for is feeling okay. You know, feeling like, not as terrible as you otherwise would. Like you can you can go down into the depths, but the greatest height you can achieve is just sort of medium. It's it's kind of a you're kind of doomed with that recipe, aren't you? Yeah, the it's just the absence of anxiety is right. like the only happiness you know. And then you always feel that anxiety of but when is it going to change? Right, right. When is it going to come back? Well, I read your book. I read How to Keep House While Drowning. Let's define what struggle care is. What is struggle care? So struggle care is a play on the term self-care, which has six pillars that help us 
redefine and sort of refocus on what self-care actually means. So self-care for a lot of us is very aspirational. It's very bubble baths. It's very influencer-esque. It's it's the extras that you add on to. And, and a lot of people that talk about self-care will talk about things and they end up being just more things to add to the to-do list that you then feel shitty about when you don't complete them. Right. Right? Okay, yes. And it's like one more thing to feel guilty that you don't do. It's like, oh, another thing I don't do right. And so struggle care is the idea that even in the midst of struggling, even when we are having an extremely hard time experiencing a lot of barriers in our lives, that we're on this journey of learning how to care for ourselves with tenderness, even when we're in the depths, when we're in the depths, when we're in the heights, when we're in the lefts and the rights, like it doesn't matter where we are refocusing what this is all about, about us. So you know, it's not about I'm doing bad. I need to do differently so that I can still be lovable. It's about I'm in distress and I deserve joy in my life. And so is there something that I can do to help lessen that distress and gain more functioning and joy in my life? And is the idea that this is something to use when you are struggling? Or is this the idea that life is a struggle and 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 uh the sooner you recognize that the better the better off you'll be the be- better chance at peace you will have i think in some ways it's both i think that it definitely is intended to appeal to people who are experiencing struggle who are feeling sort of on the outside of what a normal sort of pop psychology mainstream self-care talk because a lot of self-care content is extremely privileged and doesn't take into consideration the barriers people are really experiencing in their life. You know, a lot of self-care talk can be really oriented towards, you know, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps, just believe in yourself. And real struggle can't be fixed that way. And then I also think, you know, I don't want to be too nihilistic about it, but struggling is not an indication that something is wrong with you or something is broken in you, that that it's normal for humans to struggle. I'm not saying that if you're struggling and you're in a lot of pain that you're just doomed because life is pain, but just that there is nothing wrong with you. If you're looking around going, why am I the only one having such a hard time with this? I would suggest that most people are having a hard time in some way. Right, right. We're we're a nihilism friendly program, by the way. So you can you can <laughs> okay, feel, feel free to unleash that here. Yeah, it, and it's it's so easy to to think that you're doing something wrong in an age of social media with everybody putting their highlight reel of how great their life is going with their well scrubbed, well behaved children and and wonderful vacations that they put on Facebook. It's it's so easy to feel like you're the you're the only one messing it up. As you mess yeah, up. I always say that we're constantly comparing our behind-the-scenes cuts with someone else's highlight reel. Right, right. Yes, we're we're the messy documentary, and they're the feature film. Yeah, yeah. How did you develop this concept? Where did this Where did this originate, and how did it evolve? Well, I had had my second baby, and we were in a city where we didn't know anybody. And I had um, my first daughter had not yet turned two. And then I had another baby and my husband had just become a new attorney at a corporate law firm and the pandemic hit. 
and everything got shut down. And all of a sudden, this entire support plan that I had for myself just fell off because, you know, like friends couldn't come over, family couldn't visit, the the cleaning services couldn't come in, right? The the meals and on all of that just stopped. I couldn't go out to the new moms groups. I couldn't even go out to the grocery store anymore. I mean, I was deeply traumatized by the pandemic in the beginning. Um, I mean, we're still in a pandemic, but I was deeply traumatized by the beginning of the first year or two of it. Um, and I remember putting my kids into the car and just driving the 610 loop around Houston just to get out of the house. Cause I thought it's going to lose my mind and there's nobody on the highway and every, you know, like teleprompter thing on the highway is just flashing information about COVID. And it was like living in the first scenes of a zombie movie of an apocalypse movie, except it's not exciting. It's miserable and terrifying. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And here I am with my two children and, I've got ADHD. And one of the things that happens to me is that if I get too isolated and understimulated, I get depressed. So I got postpartum depression and I've always been a really messy person, but functional. But all of a sudden within two years, I went from me and my husband living in a small apartment to me, my husband and two children living in a house. And he was in school, you know, when we were in the apartment. Now he's like working six days a week. And so all of a sudden it didn't like nothing was functional in my house with my normal way of addressing my house wasn't working anymore. This sort of ad hoc, uh, I just don't do anything for four days. And then I, you know, for an hour do everything because babies won't let you do something for an hour straight. And I was exhausted and I was tired and I was depressed. And all of a sudden I didn't have any energy and I didn't have any motivation and I was overwhelmed with simple tasks and I actually started making TikTok videos of myself cleaning, talking about like the hacks that I was using to stop being overwhelmed. And people started resonating with that. People started saying, I thought I was the only one whose house looked like this. I thought I was the only one that really struggled with simple tasks. And that's kind of also where that struggle is in struggle care is I feel like I'm not allowed to struggle with something as simple as dishes. And so I don't want to tell anybody about it. And I think a lot of people are discovering in this community that they aren't the only person struggling with these simple daily activities of living and that it's valid to struggle with those things. The channel really gained a lot of steam. I ended up writing the book for people that maybe weren't following on the channel, started a podcast about it. And the whole thing has just kind of blown up to what it is now. And, and that's, where it came from. And so there's six pillars that I sort of use to describe what the philosophy is. And the first one is that care tasks are morally neutral. You know, you're not a good or bad person because of what your house looks like. Yes. The the chore is not a judgment. It is neutral. Dishes don't judge. <laughs> Dishes don't judge. Thank God. Well, let's roll through what those six items are. And then I want to roll through uh, my own house with you a little bit verbally, not visually, and, and get some ideas on that. Okay. What are the six pillars of struggle care? So care tasks are morally neutral. You deserve kindness regardless of your level of functioning. Kindness from yourself and others? Mm-hmm. Okay. Shame is the enemy of functioning. Rest is a right and not a reward. You can't save the rainforest if you're depressed. <laughs> what does that mean? That means that you need to let go of eco-perfectionism 
and eco guilt when you are looking for adaptive routines and products and to survive and meet your needs. So you need to get your paper plates. If your dishes are so full in your sink that you don't have anything clean to eat off of anymore, right? You need to run your dishwasher every day, even if it's half full. If you're someone who in the absence of a daily routine like that, can't seem to get enough clean dishes to eat off of. You need to throw things away instead of donate or sell. If you're someone whose clutter is really keeping you from functioning in your home. And then the last one is good enough is perfect. All right, let's write down those six pillars. Grab a pen, everybody. Hit pause on this if you need to. Okay, pillar number one, care tasks are morally neutral. Two, you deserve kindness regardless of your level of functioning. You can give yourself that kindness, by the way. Three, shame is the enemy of functioning. Number four, rest is a right and not a reward. That's a big one. Five, you can't save the rainforest if you're depressed. And six, good enough is perfect. We'll get into that last one after the break. I'm Jordan Morris. And I'm Jesse Thorne. On Jordan Jesse Go, we make pure, delightful nonsense. We rope in awesome guests and bring them down to our level. We get stupid with Judy Greer. My friend Molly and I call it having the space weirds. Pat Oswalt. Can I get a Balrog burger and some Aragorn fries? Thank you. And Kumail Nanjiani. I've come back with cat toothbrushes, which is impossible to use. Come get stupider with us at MaximumFun.org. Look, your podcast app's already open. Just pull it out. Give Jordan Jesse Go a try. Being smart is hard. Be dumb instead. Back with Casey Davis, proponent of struggle care. We were talking about the pillars of her approach, and the last one was good enough is perfect. I asked Casey what that meant. I think most of us have heard the phrase, you know, good enough is good enough, but that really feels like settling. Like, well, I, you know, I'm just not as good as other people. And I say good enough is perfect because that's about having boundaries. That's about saying, I don't like an excellent life requires imperfection. And it, and if you try to be excellent at everything, you will not have an excellent life. You'll be burnt out and miserable. You have a background as, as a therapist and as a person with ADHD, as you mentioned, is this the accumulation of the professional and personal experience kind of, did it rise up to this point gradually or did this whole concept kind of dawn on you in the middle of picking up toys from toddlers? <laughs> uh, in some ways, both, I guess. I think it's stuff that I had always kind of, that throughout my journey of, of my life had had internalized for myself, but had never really vocalized. When I started making videos and interacting with people in the comments and answering questions and trying to give tips to people that were asking questions, that's when I began to sort of see, you know, I'm giving like the same six answers over and over. And it's really those six pillars. And so I sort of flushed it out, if you will, over the course of a couple of years and interacting with my audience. But I I suffered with addiction really at a really young age. And I got sober when I was 16 at a facility that was very, very strict, that was religious in nature, that was very shame-based, that that really had this sort of 
if you can be an honest, God-fearing, upstanding citizen, you won't struggle with addiction anymore. And from there, I left and joined a 12-step group. And I fell in with a 12-step group that was extremely militant. And from there, joined a church that was very evangelical. And so I, for a very long time, for a period of probably nine years, was really gripped by moral perfectionism. I never would have called myself a perfectionist because I don't care if my room is clean. I don't care if a bill is late. I don't care if like something I do isn't perfect, but I absolutely believed that my worthiness, my destiny, my eternity, my ability to be loved hinged on being morally good. Mm. And you mentioned ADHD. I I don't know anybody who's struggled with with addiction or substance use disorder that that hasn't also experienced depression. Have you you've dealt with depression as well, I assume? Yeah, so I've had two depressive episodes in my life and they were in extremely different circumstances, but when I look back, I can see that the inciting factors were the same. So, I've always been confused by my experience of depression because it it didn't really come along with a negative self-concept. You know, I experienced some depression in my addiction, but it, that's so bound up together, you know, but these were both out of it in sobriety. And in both times, I didn't think that I was worthless. I didn't hate myself. I didn't have like a negative self-concept. I didn't have a low self-esteem and I wasn't sad and I wasn't in pain, but I was so bored I was emotionally flatlined and numb and I couldn't feel anything. And I felt apathetic and that was painful. And I felt isolated and I didn't want to do anything or go anywhere. And the first time I experienced that, I was living in Guatemala city, single working down there. And then the second time was when I was postpartum with two children and what I identified was that in both times I, I got isolated and I got bored and I didn't have like a hyper fixation or, or something to do or think about that I was passionate about. And I was sort of caught in, in just a monotony of the day. And I didn't feel like I had anything to look forward to. Not that I wasn't experiencing anything pleasurable. And so I sort of later when I got my ADHD diagnosis recognized that it was my ADHD that was causing those depressive episodes. How so? Well, because, you know, one of the things that's happening in in the brain with ADHD is sort of some things happening with your neurotransmitters and, and dopamine is one of them, right? Like that pleasure chemical. And we don't tend to regulate dopamine like everybody else. And what you see with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is that the way that we choose how to do things is like a totally different rubric than other people. So we feel motivated by novelty and pressure and things that kind of get that going. We don't feel motivated by urgency or importance or responsibility. I've always had like a thing whether it was some hobby or some job or some affiliation or some organization that I was kind of thinking on and doing all of the time. And I'm a really social person. And so getting that social connection with people 
when I'm not able to have projects in my life, whether that project is simple, like putting together a shelf or large, like working on a big project at work, that's where I get a lot of sense of reward, satisfaction, motivation. And in the absence of those things, when I get isolated and understimulated, I don't experience boredom as inconvenient. I experience it as painful. I don't have enough pleasure, reward system, you know, like things happening in my brain to feel any pleasure at all. Mm. And I just go numb. Okay. In the work that you've done as a as a therapist and as someone who speaks on on these topics a lot in on TikTok and in other public settings, is this really common with ADHD? Do you see this happening in other people as well? What I see is people who either have several diagnoses or several issues that they thought were a bunch of separate issues, and then they get an ADHD diagnosis later in life and realize that all of those things were actually just ADHD. So a lot of people that look back and go, oh my God, I think my addiction was just me self-medicating ADHD. Do you think that's what your addiction was? I think it's probably oversimplistic to attribute my addiction to any one thing, but I can look back at particularly the treatment of my addiction and some of the things that were pointed at me as this is problematic this is unhealthy, this is dysfunctional, this is selfish and self-absorbed that I look back and go, no, that was just me having ADHD. And when I say that I was a moral perfectionist, I don't necessarily mean like doing good as in like, you know, volunteering, giving to charity. I meant like I over-moralized everything. The way I'm dressed, well, is it is it too flashy? Because that would be selfish. Is it too immodest? Because that would be wrong. Is it ethically sourced? Because then you're a bad person. Did you spend too much money? Did you ride impulsively? Because God, get a grip, Casey. Like the dishes in the sink. God, you're so lazy, Casey. Did you cancel on that friend? You shouldn't have canceled. You could have gone, Casey. Like I'm not talking about like, am I a good person? Am I like oppressing people? Am I giving to charities? I'm talking about every single thing in my life being about whether I was a good person that had their shit together or whether I was a piece of shit, lazy person that just could not get it together. How did you break out of that? Well, um, I left my 12 step group and eventually left the church that I was attending and just sort of started this like long, weird, gentle journey of it being okay to just exist and not having to pounce on every little selfish thought I had as something I had to do something about and go atone for somewhere. My husband actually helped a lot with that. He is one of the best people I've ever met, but very chill. Like the big things are the big things. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take struggle care and, and the pillars into the home here, if, if we okay. could. I was walking around my house today thinking, oh, I've got this interview coming up, but oh, I've got this, uh, I, I should do the dishes before I do that. And oh, you know, the, the living room needs to be to be gone over a little bit. Cause, and I was thinking, how am I going to organize this conversation with Casey? I'm like, well, this is this is one way to start. So let's say that I'm in my living room and my kids are older now, but let's say I have younger kids and 
There's an impact from them. There's toys. There's stuff. There's dishes that have made their way in there and haven't found their way back to the, the kitchen. And it's a mess. It's, it's just a mess. How would you recommend I enter this room? And what do you recommend I do once I get there? Well, first, I recommend that we sort of pinpoint what we are thinking the goal is and take it away from this all has to be clean. This all has to be perfect. I can't believe I got, let it get this way. And sort of person if if it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe I did. No, it's fine. It's just stuff. It's morally neutral, but you do deserve a functioning space. And so if the space isn't functioning for you anymore, we can do something about it. And one of my favorite sort of approaches is the five things tidying method, which is the same every time you start and you're just going to get a trash bag and pick up all the trash and then you're going to set the bag aside and then get a laundry basket and pick up all the laundry and the shoes and then put that to the side, get all the dishes and put them in the sink and then sort of pick a place in the room and kind of go space by space or corner by corner, whatever makes you happy and put away everything that has a home And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have a jar of pins that lives on your shelf, well, then if you pick up a pin that was on the coffee table, okay, well, this goes into that jar of pins on the shelf. And then if you pick something up and it doesn't really have a place, so you're going, okay, well, here's my, you know, I bought my kid, my kids a cat toy. Well, okay, I don't really have like a place for this giant fishing pole with a, you know, bird feathers on the end of it. (laughs) Then I just make a pile. Just make a pile of those things, right? Put it in a box, put it in a laundry basket, and then do that until you've put away everything that has a place. And what you're left with is just this basket of things that don't have a place. I want to jump in here because I really like Casey's rule here, and it makes the world clearer and thus more manageable. Clutter in a room, things you need to pick up, can only exist in one of five categories. Do you still have that pen from last time? Okay, great. Garbage, dishes, laundry, things that have a place, and things that don't yet have a place. That's all clutter can actually be. And from there, you can make the decision, you know, do I want to stop here because I was just trying to get things livable and I have other things to do today? Or, you know, do I want to sit down, put on a Netflix show, put a good podcast on and figure out some permanent homes for these things? And You can also do like some of it, like, okay, I'm going to pick three of these items and give them permanent homes. And then I'm just going to put this laundry basket on the floor in the corner, not behind a drawer, not somewhere where I can't see it somewhere where it's visible, because that's my pile of things that don't have a place. We're not trying to create, you know, a doom shelf somewhere. And then maybe when I can, I pick a couple of items and find homes for them. And then every time you do that, there will be fewer and fewer items that don't have a home and you'll get very fast at tidying your space. So when at the end of it, that's when you can go throw your trash in the trash can, load up your dishes into the dishwasher or or wash them, throw your laundry into the laundry. And the reason I say it that way is because a lot of us, what we, what happens is we start in one room, right? We go, Oh, these shoes need to go in my closet in my room. And we go into our closet. And then while we're in there, we realize, Ooh, and you know what? Like the trash smells bad in here. And so I'm going to take the trash out. So you get that trash and you take the trash outside and then you get outside and you realize, oh God, it's actually trash day. I need to take the trash can down to the curb and you take the trash can down to the curb. And then while you're there, you might as well check the mail. So you get the mail, you realize there's something in the mail, you open it up. Oh my gosh, I got to take care of this. 
and we just end up getting so sidetracked. And so that's a way of sort of like not really leaving the room. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that a common thing for people who don't have a diagnosed ADHD to, to just sort of flit from one room to another and, and get distracted and then feel like we've made no progress? I wouldn't know. Okay. <laughs> I do know that everybody with ADHD feels that way. Yeah. And I mean, here's the other thing is that one of the reasons why ADHD can feel so debilitating is because it is a disorder that affects your executive functioning and your executive functioning are these functions that happen in your prefrontal cortex. And there are things like time management, planning, flexibility, emotional regulation, your working memory, the ability to sort of look at something and break it down into various steps and then prioritize which steps need to happen first. And, and all of that's happening there, right? The ability to be on one pathway of doing something, but then all of a sudden something happens and you sort of, you know, you can adjust. It doesn't just like rock your whole world for that one thing to pop up. And, and so executive dysfunction is one of the hallmarks of ADHD. However, executive functioning can be affected by a lot of things. Depression, major depression affects executive functioning significantly. Post-traumatic stress affects executive functioning. Sleep deprivation, burnout. There are a ton of things, both other um, disorders and just other life stressors that can compromise your executive functioning. And so there's a lot of things that I think under the umbrella of struggle, people really relate to. And it isn't because we all have the same diagnosis, but it is because in so many ways, coming under the stress of life, like chronic stress for too long, or having a mental or neurodevelopmental disorder that affects your executive functioning has that same effect on everybody. Okay. All right. So I've looked at the living room. I've taken into account the five things that might be in there and what I can do about them. And I have not gotten distracted and gone off to mow the lawn or do something else. I've stayed in the living room. And now I move on to the kitchen. And I, I just want to put these same principles into effect in the kitchen. Because in my kitchen, in my theoretical kitchen here, the sink is piled high. There's food left out. There are some smells that are questionable, and I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling like I'm a bad person because I let it become this way, and mm -hmm. I feel like giving up, and it is not a workable space for me to make the dinner that I really want to make later on. Okay. So what do I do? You know the kitchen I'm talking about, right? We're going to tackle it right after the break. Well, that's not right. The kitchen isn't a football player. We're not tackling it. We're going to take care of ourselves by cleaning the kitchen after the break. Hi, I'm Hal Loveland. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. And we're the hosts of We Got This with Mark and Hal, the weekly show where we settle the debates that are most important to you. That's right. What arguments are you and your friends having that you just can't settle? Apples or oranges? Marvel or DC? Fork versus spoon. Chocolate or vanilla? Best bagel. What's the best Disney song? We Got This with Mark and Hal. Every week on Maximum Fun, we do the arguing so you don't have to. Oh, all answers are final for all people for all time. We got this. 
back with Casey Davis, and we're in the kitchen. The dishes are piled high, and we're going to do something about this while being kind to ourselves. So we want to start first, of course, with that negative criticism you're giving yourself and try to answer that with some self-compassion, which is care tasks are morally neutral. I'm just a person who is struggling right now. And people who are struggling deserve compassion. If my best friend had let this happen in their house, I'd say, oh, you're you're a fine person. You, you're just having a little bit of difficulty right now. I can transfer that same thought to myself and be at least as kind to myself. Exactly. That's a good way of doing it, of thinking, how would you address your best friend? And it's not about gaslighting yourself or saying, you're great. You're awesome. You're super responsible. <laughs> it's about recognizing just like the shared humanity of you're not broken. Even if you're like, oh, I shouldn't have gone and, you know, played basketball instead of addressing the dishes. Well, who cares if you should or shouldn't? You just, you did. And here's what we have. And okay, people are people. They make choices and they don't always have to make the right ones. So you want to kind of do that, check in with yourself. And I find in the kitchen, especially like, so we kind of have this framework of thinking, like you can do the five things in your kitchen, you can do it in any room, but you also want to think about your sensory experiences because Sensory aversion is at the root of a lot of people's avoidance of care tasks because they have a hard time coping with the smells. They have a, they don't like the feeling of their hands being wet. And so thinking through, you know, how can I care for my senses? So making sure that you have a good pair of dishwashing gloves, making sure that you have an apron that works for you. I like an apron that's waterproof. I really dislike you know, I, I, um, there's even certain clothes that like, I feel like I can't do things when I'm in like baggy clothes. Like I almost cannot really be productive unless I'm in shorts and a tank top. I don't like the feeling of things on my sleeves or on my legs when I'm trying to do things, putting on some music or a podcast that sort of hits your auditory senses. I am a big fan of simmer pots, which is just like this really pretty glass pot that you put on your stove. You put like lemon peels or orange rinds and cinnamon and and all sorts of stuff that smells good. And you put it on a boil and it makes your house smell really good. And for smells, getting a face mask, you know, it's like the normal one you would wear out, but you can put, you can put a little peppermint oil on the inside. You can put a little Vicks on the inside. You can put a little something on the inside so that you're not smelling those smells. And it's really helpful. So address and care for your senses and then allow yourself to just do a little set a timer for five minutes and give yourself permission to stop after five minutes. But if I stop after five minutes, the kitchen isn't going to get clean and then I'm a bad person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm just playing some devil's advocate here with you. Yeah. Yeah. But it'll be cleaner than it was five minutes ago. Like, what do you have to lose? Ah, okay. And then, it, and then I can come back and chip off another five minutes later on. Or you can keep going. A lot of people find that once they've started, they're like, well, I might as well keep going. Four more minutes, five more mm. minutes. So a lot of times once you get the ball rolling, you want to keep going. And if you don't, that's your, that's your body and your brain telling you, no, I actually do just need to rest. Okay. Okay. And so, so then I've made some progress on the kitchen. I've overcome the smells. I'm not a bad person. I've treated myself with some struggle care. Let's knock out one more room here if we can, because a lot of people have kids. Not everybody has kids, but a lot of adults have kids. 
you go into a kid's room and it looks like a tornado hit it. You have told them not to do this in the past, and yet there are clothes and toys and dishes all over the place. And you're a bad parent and your kids are going to never be well adjusted as long as you live. And you've, you've failed everybody and everything's awful. I, I say this <laughs> to, to reflect the feelings that might be below the surface for a lot of parents. What do you do about that room? How do you, how do you approach that? Well, we want to check in with the way that we're talking to ourselves again, right? And ask if we would ever talk that way to somebody that we love. And then ask ourselves what we would say to them. And the truth is, is that it's not my goal to have compliant children. Having compliant children is really easy. You just scare you just scare them. You just scar them for life and they'll fall in line. Yeah, no, I mean it. Like you just find a way to be intimidating enough, to be threatening enough, to be coercive enough, to find something that they love enough that you can hold it over their heads. It's not hard to make compliant children. And there's a lot of pressure from our society to have compliant children because compliant children are a reflection of what how good of a parent you are. And so we have to let go of that. It's not true. You know, I know a lot of social workers and teachers and child therapists and one of the things that they actually look for as a red flag when they're assessing children that might be in abusive spaces is how compliant they are. And I don't mean well-behaved children. I mean like developmentally inappropriate, quiet, still, not making mistakes, not venturing out, not being boy. You know what I mean? Like just not being children. Like they never push back. They never tantrum. They never, you know, any of that. Because when kids do that, they do that when they feel safe to push back, to act out, to say, I don't want to pick up my toys. So my goal is not to create compliant children. My goal is to create children. Let's talk about specifically the area of care tasks is to create children that have a morally neutral relationship to care tasks. So it's not a guilt trip kind of thing. How, you know, you've really let me down by not cleaning your room. Yeah. Because a lot of the adults that I know that struggle with care tasks do so because of messages that they got as children about care tasks, because of the way that their parents treated care tasks. And so they either are afraid to live in their homes and be messy because they feel like they're a bad person if it's messy. Or what also happens is if you have overly punitive cold parents that, you know, everything has to be a museum. You can't ever be real in here. Once they turn 18 and leave, there is this sense of autonomy that feels it's necessary to assert itself to go. I don't live under those rules anymore. I'm not going to be like that. I live however I want. And even if things aren't functional, there's this part of you that just wants to assert that like I am my own person now. And you never learned what it meant to look at a space and go, this doesn't work for me. You never learn to develop the intrinsic motivation to care for your space as a way of caring for yourself. And so I want to help my children develop intrinsic motivation. And that doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen when they're four years old. And I'm not perfect at it, but that's my goal. And so when my children are really little, you know, I I don't want to implement this sort of like every day the playroom has to be cleaned up, but I want to wait until they are experiencing 
the functionality of that room and begin to point it out to them. So, oh, you stepped on a Lego? Oh, that hurts so badly. It's kind of hard when the playroom is so messy like this. It's hard, you know, it's not, doesn't sound very safe. What do you say that you and I sit down and clean it up now so that that doesn't happen again? Or, oh, you can't find your doll? Yeah, it's really messy in here. Isn't it hard to find things sometimes when things are really messy? So just beginning to have that conversation with them so that they understand, oh yeah, like life is better when my space is better. And if you have older kids, you know, I don't have older kids. So I try not to, I try to stay in my lane on that one. But I think sitting down and having explicit conversations about what's functional for you, not, not telling your kids, well, here's what you should have in the morning. You should have your clothes laid out. You should have this, you should, but asking them, what bothers you about your morning being rushed? What bothers you about your morning when you get to school and your phone's not charged? And helping them connect because it's it's more important for them. Like, let's say they go to school every day in wrinkled clothes with their phone battery dying, with their homework lost. And you're thinking you need to be putting your homework in your bag every night. Like that is an important task. That's the most important task. But to them, it's well, my why I hate when my phone's dying because I can't text my friends. And instead of trying to get him to have a different priority, roll with that because flexing and developing the muscle of delayed gratification and thinking ahead about things when that muscle gets good and strong he can he can apply it to other things as he matures the idea of what what is functionality what is a working environment mm-hmm. and what can i do now to care for future me oh yeah yeah how can i do the the teenage version of having the coffee pot ready to go in the morning. Kind of exactly. Okay. And you, and in order for that to work, in order for them to be learning that instead of just compliance, there has to be things that they care about. How do we find what, what our version of a working space is? Like if, if the threshold isn't being immaculate, it's being functional how do we find cause that's a moving target every and it's subjective. How do we find that for ourselves? So there's an exercise in my book where I, I talk about finding the function. And basically we start and say that there's this kind of baseline level of functioning that's universally true with, which is safe and sanitary. And so like you could take a room or a task and ask yourself like, what would I have to do to just reach that low level baseline safe and sanitary? So that would be, okay, well, if I wanted my kitchen to be safe and sanitary, I don't want food left out, right? Like I want to be able to remove food. I don't want bugs. I don't want mold. I don't want bacteria. I don't want biohazards. I don't want anyone tripping on the floor. Like you sort of start to think, okay, what would be safe and sanitary? From there, you move on to that second layer, which is just comfort. So what about this task makes a comfort difference for me? So for example, let's say taking cleaning your floors. Well, the reason to clean your floors on from a safety sanitary perspective is number one, you know, we don't want mold or bacteria. So I want to remove like the gross stuff. Number two, I don't want anyone tripping and falling. So I want to remove tripping hazards. So if I was just, I mean, I let's say I have zero energy that day and I just want to get my floors safe and sanitary. Well, all of a sudden now I can just, what if I just created a path from my kitchen to my bedroom? I don't even have to clean the whole floor, but I just, I need one place to walk that's safe, sanitary, and, and that's great. But let's move up to different comfort. Okay, well, 
I really dislike the feeling of little crumbs on the bottom of my bare feet. And I am someone who likes to be barefoot in my house. So that's not safety or sanitary issue, but it is like a comfort issue. Like I am, it's a comfort issue. So, okay, you know, I don't want to be stepping on things that are sticky or, or so if I swept that up or vacuumed it up, that would make me more comfortable. And then the little cherry on the top would be happiness. So what makes me happy? And one of the things that makes me happy is, you know, I have this chair that I sit in where I can, I can see like a good part of my floors. And I like when I can look down the hallway and it has that like sheen to it. Like, you know how you can look at your floors at a certain angle and you can see that there's like dust and mud on it, even sure. if there's no like visible particles, right? It's like, I like to look at it. I like when it's all clean and shiny, right? Or you can say, I like the vacuum lines on the rug. That just makes <laughs> me happy. So when you understand those three layers of the task, when you come to do that task, you can understand, you can sort of take stock. What, what are, what's my energy level today? What's my desire level today? What's my time level today? Like how much time and energy do I have on for this task? And then I can decide, man, today's the day where I take it to the cherry on top. We're deep cleaning these floors. Or, you know, I was up nine times last night with the baby. Breastfeeding's really hard. I, you know, just stubbed my toe. I'm feeling depressed. I'm just going to clear myself a path to the bathroom so nobody trips and falls on their face today. And every little gradient in between. But it's an awareness of those gradients. It's an awareness mm -hmm. of, of what those levels are. You know, I, I think about the time I spend doing stuff around the house, whether it's cleaning the kitchen or whether it's doing laundry or, or whatever it is. And I've done, you know, dozens and dozens of mental health podcast episodes. This is the first time I've talked about housework in all that time. And, and you're one of the only people I know in mental health who, who talks about it and really focuses in on it. Why has it been so ignored? Why do people overlook the importance of this thing that we spend so much of our time and energy doing? I think there's a few reasons from a mental health perspective, from a mental health professional perspective, there is no training on this in your like classes to become a therapist or a psychologist. Like there's no training on, so they're, they're referred to as ADLs in the clinician world. It's activities of daily living and in various assessments at various levels of care, outpatient, inpatient, partial inpatient, we are called on to assess someone's ADLs. So like whether they can take care of themselves, whether they can dress themselves, feed themselves, things like that. But there's no training in it. There's no, what are the different ADLs? How do you help somebody with ADLs? There's a great bit of occupational therapy that will talk about that. But a lot of people don't realize that those things can be applied to like mental health struggles and just seasons of life. You know, they really think of it more as, okay, somebody broke their leg and the occupational therapist will help them with with that. I also think that so many of us assume these are simple tasks. And so if you're struggling with them, it must be a moral failing. You must just be stupid or lazy or irresponsible. And that's not a mental health issue. Why would you ever even bring that up? Right. Like it's, it's, it's a symptom of something else. It's not, it's not a thing in and of itself. Yeah. And so I think people don't think to bring it up to their therapists and therapists don't think to ask about it we tend to want to go for these big, or if they do know like, oh, okay, my house is messy. It's overwhelming. I dislike it. And, and we'll go, well, why? Well, it's because I'm depressed. Okay. Well, let's work on the depression. And it's like, we skip right to like, let's fix the root cause, but we don't think a lot about like, how can I increase your quality of living in the meantime? Because nobody is going to cure their depression overnight. 
Right. Well, um, so that's why. Can it go the other way too? Can you know if I get a good perspective on the on cleaning up my house? Can I apply those same lessons to kind of cleaning up my mind and, and getting getting the, my table set there and getting getting things in order for my relationships, for my uh, for my work, for my friendships, you know, for my my family relationships, that kind of thing? Can I use it to address larger issues of of mental health that I have going on using using this as kind of a a metaphor? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the back door to mental health. You go through the kitchen to get to mental health. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you, you know, practicing these skills of self-compassion and moral neutrality and adaptive thinking and dealing with overwhelm and having boundaries around, you know, allowing yourself to rest, learning how to treat yourself with tenderness, learning how to care for yourself, even if you don't care about yourself. All of those skills practiced at this micro level of dishes and laundry and cleaning can be applied elsewhere in your life and, and do begin to change who you are and the way that you're moving through the world. And all of a sudden you're going, okay, what, what else in my life is morally neutral? Maybe my grades are morally neutral. Maybe my job promotion is morally neutral. Maybe my relationship status is morally neutral. Maybe my weight's morally neutral. Maybe my diet's morally neutral. Maybe how big my house is is morally neutral. Maybe I don't have to carry all these things on my back and run them through the filter of my own self-worth every yes. single goddamn time. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, that sounds like a very pleasant way to live. That's pretty good. <laughs> The podcast is Struggle Care. The book is How to Keep House While Drowning, A Gentle Approach to Cleaning and Organizing. Casey Davis, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find links to all of Casey Davis's work at strugglecare.com. We have a link to that on our show page. Next time on Depression Mode, comedian Neil Brennan on therapy that didn't really stick and a dream that totally stuck. So it was just stuff that I didn't believe in. Like, what? tell me about your dreams. And I'd be like, I have the same dream every night. I've had the same dream every night, more or less, for 15 years, which is Lorne Michaels is mad at me. I never worked with Lorne until about five years ago. But it was always some sort of SNL dream, a place I'd never worked and Lauren was mad at me. It's like, it's not even symbol. It's like the laziest dream writing. Shame on my brain for that. If people support our show, we can keep having a show. If they don't, we can't. It's just that simple. If you are listening to this program and are supporting it by donating to it, you are making it happen. You are getting these positive messages out to the world, and we thank you. If you're not yet a member, that can easily be fixed. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join, find a level that works for you, and select Depression Mode. You'll be in and out in just a few minutes, I promise, and you'll listen to the show differently after that because you'll know that you're one of the people making this thing possible. Be sure to hit subscribe and give us five stars and write rave reviews. All of that helps us get the word out about the show. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24-7 in the United States by calling 988. The Crisis Text Line, also free, also always available, 
text the word HOME to 741741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. We're on Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depresh Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Just search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. When I clean my kitchen, I put on the 12-minute version of Meatloaf's song, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. Not only do I love that song and that version, but it guarantees that no one else in the family will come into the kitchen to bother me while I'm getting it done. Everyone wins. Depression Mode is made possible by your contributions. The show is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hi, I'm Tom from Ottawa Let's be depression buddies. Thanks this week to Anna Cole and Adam Walker for suggesting we book Casey Davis. What a wonderful idea. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.